Let's continue uh, with the uh, second uh, section of our interview called The Basic Part. Um, I, I would like to, to refine right now our interview uh, in your book, uh, Carvelian Lingual Culturology of the Past, um, mm-hmm. uh, pages 282 uh, through uh, 313. Uh, and I'd like to discuss your article titled Cartvelian Sumerian and the Theory of Communication, uh, which was published. Uh, what, what date was that again? I forgot uh, what date. Um, this um, the, this uh, book was published in 2018, uh, two okay. years ago. Uh, but the article itself was published a couple of times here in Georgia. <coughs> uh, it was published in uh, English and in Georgian. Uh, if I'm not mistaken... Um, in 2016, it was published in the journal. It's called Cartvelology. It was published in Georgian. And in English, it was published uh, much earlier, I suppose. Was it Was it again? I think about maybe 2016 to 2015. Okay. I'm not sure. But I did it right after the uh, presentation uh, in, uh, was it in late? I know I forget where I participated <laughs> in conferences. It's okay. <laughs> so okay. I think it was in Leiden, yeah. Well, you, you made an incredible statement as you do in all of your, your, your all throughout your book, but you, you said something that really caught me. You, you said, and I'm going to just put a quotation on this one, um, although Sumerian is known as an isolate, it is, in fact, genetically tied to the Kartvelian languages, not only through regular sound correspondences, but a coded linguistic system. Uh, the two languages together mount a language cipher of exceptional unbreakability, which has withstood several millennia. The key to this code lies in Kartvelian, and it may also prove to be the key to, to various other writing systems, artifacts, and cultural uh, mysteries far beyond the scope of this paper to discuss. Now, I know that we, we you've covered some of that. I just wanted to, I want, we're, again, we're trying to go through the chart here, the paper. Um, but can you, and, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, because I don't think you and I discussed this in the uh, in the interview uh, chart form, but can you explain t- to us a little bit about the coded linguistic linguistic system one more time? Is that possible? Yeah. Yes, of course. And uh, you know, to better understand this concept because it's a new concept, I would like to start with the main criterion of um, genetic relations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in mainstream linguistics, it is, uh, and it has been working by this, uh, this is not an, a view or something. This is a proved thing that sound correspondences between languages can be taken as proof of their genetic relations. Mm-hmm. And it is correct. And it has been proved on, especially on uh, uh, in the European languages. However, my research shows that it's not only uh, sound correspondences that we have between languages, but there may be some other types of connections. And in this case, these are secret techniques, cipher or codes that languages can be connected. And uh, what I have seen it's the Georgian or it's the Kartvelian languages that are connected through this cipher 
with the Sumerian on the one hand and with the Egyptian as well. But we are not talking about the Egyptian uh, at this point. So we have two types of genetic relations, sound correspondences and codified systems. Now, mainstream Assyriologists or linguists do not recognize the second one because they haven't been able to decipher it, to see it in their own, through their right. own research. Right. Now, once I've been doing that with, uh, with Sumerian uh, and applying the language that Assyriologists have not applied, then I can see these coded relations. So a coded system a coded language is a completely new concept and quite a bizarre concept, you know, for scholars. And I understand that because for so many years they've been investigating languages, their context, you know, what have you. And all of a sudden there comes somebody who says, hey, you know what? There are secret coded uh, enciphered uh, relations between languages as well. So, um, but... The main thing is how is a coded system, a coded language coming to being? What happens? Now, in this case, um, I, would, I would like to kind of uh, compare a natural language and a coded language. And uh, in this case, the difference between them will be very, very clear and not only clear, but also people will think that, yes, this is possible. Native languages are those languages that we speak, English, Georgian, you know, what have you. There are very many theories about the emergence of languages, of course, but we are not interested in that. The basic thing for me is that a natural language emerges in the Independently, and it is extremely important. It emerges independently in a speaking community to answer the communicative needs of the same of this community. And while the community develops, the language, of course, it develops and is perfected. Once the language system reaches a certain level, when it is used as a full-fledged system of communication, then due to the fact that the language is a uh, uh, set of isolated, discrete elements, these discrete elements can be given an added function. Mm -hmm. Again, I repeat, only after we have a natural language, we can have a uh, we can have an aim of creating a different coded system, like at Esperanto, for example, right? right. A different right. coded system which can have entirely different, um, um, entirely different relations, language relations, mm -hmm. the relations between language elements. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we know that the Sumerian language is an isolate, it, well, according to the accepted view, right? And it has no, uh, no relatives. Uh, um, it just was born somehow and disappeared somehow. But to show you how this coded language works, um, let me give you such an example. 
suppose a boyfriend and a girlfriend uh, wants to meet. And uh, the girl's family knows nothing about it and do not, you know, does not allow their daughter to go and meet anyone. So the boy calls her and she knows that the family is there. She does not want them to know what that, you know, she's going to see someone and tells him, uh, um, excuse me, I have to, my uh, battery is running low. I have to um, connect it to the um, source, okay? Uh, and so the, um, the boy calls, so the boy calls her and she says on the phone, well, you know, um, I am very busy. I have to, um, I have to work for my exam or for my lecture or whatever. And the boy knows that if she says that, so they cannot meet, the family is at home. But what happens, um, you know, about the members of the family? Do they realize what the true information was transmitted? Of course not. So they understand it literally. What we say, on the sum total of the lexical meanings of the word. In both cases, we have a language um, unit, a sentence, but this sentence works on two different levels. On the natural language level, where we have the lexical meanings, and on the coded level, which is on the agreed, pre-arranged, so to say, pre-arranged plan, agreement. Mm -hmm. It is exactly, this is the analogy of the Sumerian language. So Sumerian language is, has rather two facets. On the one hand, it is a natural language. And on the other hand, it is a coded language. Mm. That's why I call it a bifaceted, with two faces, natural, cryptic, natural, and cryptic, concealed system. Now, according to Claudia Buchanan, who uh, investigated uh, secrecy systems and wrote a book on that, mm-hmm. he says that when we have coded systems, the addressee has to be, I mean, the person who received this information can be, you know, just a, just a general, just a person, someone who receives the information. But this information can also have a specific addressee. And in this case, this message has to go to this particular person, like this boyfriend, okay, to understand what the message was about. So, what we do here now is this. The Sumerian language, as we have already said, has the natural part of it. Assyriologists are family members. They are the receivers. They hear, they understand, they describe, they say, you know, she said this, (laughs) that's fine. But they do not have the access to the second part. And it is exactly the second part 
which is the most significant one and which was aimed at a future person, future researcher. But who could have been that future researcher if, for instance, the Kartvelian languages were used as we know already that the native language, that the natural language was to be used, right? So if the Kartvelian languages were those natural languages which were encrypted at the very beginning of creating the Sumerian code system, then no matter who receives this message or who tries to read Sumerian text, Sumerian words, they will read only the lexical meanings of the words, right. what we have in Assyriology today. Right. They will not be given access to that, but they are not given access. According to um, Shena's terminology, they are, I mean, Sumerologists in this case, are enemy crypt analysts. Why? Because they try to get to the code, but unfortunately, no matter what resources they spend, they cannot do it. Why? Because they are not the decipherer, according to Shannon's terminology again, at whom the whole message was aimed at. So that's the whole, that's the big issues. Once the Kartvelian languages are allowed to... Uh, to be used in the decipherment of ancient languages, in that case, you know, wonderful avenues are being opened in front of them. I don't know, they are kind of afraid to allow Kartvelian, you, you know, in their research area. No idea why they do that. But, right. you know, once they, the most probably they are afraid for some objective and subjective reasons. But once they... Um, take this step, they will themselves see how fascinating our past was. Because to create a coded system 5,000 years ago, mm. when only the foundation of our civilization was being laid, that means that we come from a very sophisticated culture, Absolutely. from a very sophisticated beginnings. And those beginnings have to be acknowledged and have to be studied yeah. because it is our roots and we are the first people, who sh I mean, not Georgians, you know, when I say we, sure. but mankind in general, we have to find out where we come from. Absolutely. Then we can appreciate who we are today. Then we can appreciate our relationship. Then we can appreciate the diversity that we have today. Yeah. All the things that basically, you know, are the fruits of this foundation. Mm. But, you know, so far, uh, you know, this is not happening. And, uh, you know, the Sumerian language is just, how to say, sitting still and waiting for its turn, so right. to say, when finally its code will be opened and, you know, become the, how should, I don't know, become the um, information which can be accessed by everyone. Sure, absolutely. Well, for, for, the, for the audience, can you simplify for us as to why the secrecy? Well, uh, <clears throat> to answer this question, we have to go to the so-called Sumerian problem. <laughs> and the Sumerian problem is, uh, um, or rather consists of several questions. Who were the Sumerians? Where they, uh, where they, um, uh, come, uh, where they came from? 
and uh, um, how they came yeah. to, you know, to Mesopotamia. So we can uh, we can answer all these questions through um, through deciphering the secrecy which is there, yeah. because the secret lies. Um, Yes, in the entire system, but this entire huge, huge secret consists of minute, you know, spots of uh, secrets, like ciphers, small ciphers, even morphemes, little morphemes, even sounds, words, you know, relations, numerals, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why the examination of the Sumerian language takes such a long time because you have to put a sufficient amount of evidence so that others believe that, hey, you know what, what she says is correct. Mm-hmm. That, that, that there must be something to that and it needs time. Sure. I don't know, time is running out. I, I think for me anyway. <laughs> oh, no, no. You're, you're a young one. I was off the chart on that, by the way, when I asked you that question. We didn't really put that to the, uh, to the chart. But, uh, okay, so the next question would be simply... Um, uh, can you explain to, to the audience what you mean by a language cipher of exceptional unbreakability? Now, I, I know you're covering some of this, but I'm trying to recover it here with our with our list mm. of questions. Um, okay, so when we talk about unbreakability of a coded system, we actually talk about the code itself mm-hmm. and its key, because every lock has its key. It you know, mm-hmm. you can open it with. And um, in this context, again, I would like to go back to Shannon's um, scheme yeah. of communication. Uh, there he speaks about three types of secrecy systems. Number one is degenerate systems. And the degenerate systems usually have one word or one code and one key. He calls them degenerate because it's very easy to break, to find which particular secret was um, used as the uh, key to, uh, as the cipher to that particular word. Now, the next level, a higher level, so to say, and more complicated one, is um, the so-called ideal systems. We have ideal systems when uh, one code has several keys. That is, there are several words that can open up this particular key, excuse me, this particular cipher. This is much more complicated. It is much more difficult to break. And uh, it takes time, much longer time, uh, more effort, more human resources to finally find out. But it is not impossible not to break an ideal system code. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Shannon uh, speaks about the so-called perfect systems, secrecy systems, perfect secrecy systems. And he attributes them to, to a theoretical realm, thinking that this may exist in theory, Mm. but you know, it's very unlikely that, it can be put in practice. Right. Uh, these perfect systems, and he says that in such perfect uh, secrecy systems, the, co- the key of the code 
is open and it is realized together with the code. That is, as many codes you have, you have the same amount of keys and they come together mm. in unity, so to say. Yeah. Um, now, it is quite difficult to imagine a thing like that, you know, but just again to go to to compare you know with a seriologist okay when a seriologist for example read the word sila which means one liter okay and i look at it and read chili it is not sila it is chili yes, <laughs> and chili means part share so in kartvelian it is a generalized unit of, um, you know, uh, of liquid uh, um, right. uh, or grains or whatever. But in Sumerian, it's a concrete one. Mm. And so I see it as chili, but they will never see it as chili because they don't even allow the thought that the Kartvelian languages can be of some help here. Mm. And when I re yeah. look at it, and I see that it is a unit of measure, I immediately, of course, go to my unit of measure. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things, you know, I read it, I immediately recognize it. So a code, but at the same time, the key to that code. Mm. Now, I would like to show you how this most complex system was encoded in Sumerian. I think it will be interesting, and uh, I will use the English language, of course, in this case, okay. so that you can better visualize what they actually sure. did at the very beginning. Sure, please. Imagine that we have such a sentence. Um, Ted put a toy on the bed. But beforehand, we agreed, you know, all T's, P's, and D's will be replaced in our code system by the letter T. That would mean that all the words in the vocabulary will be changed. Uh, all the words containing P's, all the words containing D's will be changed. But all the words containing T will remain. So partially it will remain, but, you know, the bulk of it will become a code. And if I now pronounce it, you know, in a codified form, I will have this sentence, tet, tut, a toy on the tet. So tet, tut, toy. So what are these? These are encoded words. So and uh, if it is not agreed beforehand by the English people, you know, who decide to create such a sure. code, nobody will be able to open. It'd be impossible. So, and now, yeah, and now imagine that in Kartvelian, we have 13 specific Kartvelian sounds, the sounds that are not found in any of the languages of the world in this particular combination. Mm. And uh, they are extremely difficult for foreigners to pronounce. These are zu, zu, hu, zu, for instance. And then we have combinations, combinations of harmonic complexes. And imagine mm. that all these are put and simplified in such a manner yeah. through isolated consonants. Yeah. How can, um, you know, a guess what is encrypted in the word? 
Let me give you one example, if you allow me. Sure. Um, there is a word, Kiri, in Sumerian. Kiri, and it means a nose. <laughs> but there are many other kiris, of course, that replace different sounds. But in this case, it replaces a harmonic complex, which is sikh. Now, <clears throat> if I put instead of good, sikh, I will get Shiri, yes, Shiri, with Shui, it comes from old Georgian Shui, Shui, it's exact, so there was just uh, the loss of one semi-vowel, oh, and that's it, the rest is there, but the most interesting thing is that harmonic complexes in the Georgian language are considered to be one sound, Mm. But you hear two sounds. Mm. It's sikh, you hear. But in fact, when you pronounce it, the uh, place of articulation is assimilated. It's somewhere between tz and th. It's one sound. Uh. Therefore, that person mm. who replaced tz with k knew perfectly well that tz is one sound. Mm. That it's not two sounds. Right. Otherwise, he would have replaced it by two sounds. So he knew the phonetics of old Georgian mm. perfectly well. Oh, so this is how the code works. And believe me, this code is really unbreakable. Yeah. And it has proved it for 5,000 years. Mm. Nobody has been able to open it. Woo, great answer. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Due to the scope of your work, what are your biggest problems that you have encountered during your research and have you sought any help from academics or foundations or any other organization? Well, I have, of course, I have had very many problems. Uh, and the problems were of different kind. But, you know, you can deal, um, you know, with, um, with very many subjective stuff. You can deal on your own. Uh, but what was the most difficult one in my research was access to secondary literature. That is, you know, when you see that you need a book, you need, you need, you know, um, an article to read or a book to read, and you have no possibility of getting it. Mm -hmm. It has taken me years, years to get, you know, as, to get one book or, you know, an article or something, because right. even the, those things that are online, either you have access or you don't. And, yeah. you know, from right. this country, I do not usually have access to that. Let me give you one example. Um, I think the authors are Moran and Kelly. It's um, about alphabetic signs and the calendar signs in the alphabet. I've been looking for this book for four years, four years. Mm. And I was in the United States a couple of times. I went to Pennsylvania Library. I wanted to, you know, uh, scan or photocopy or do something. It was always on loan. I haven't been able to get this book from anywhere. Mm. I just saw yesterday when I, I wrote um, a friend of mine, this archaeologist that I talked about, uh, asking him, you know, just to inquire among his friends, uh, he has a lot of um, uh, friends living abroad, if they can get the book, because um, <laughs> I, I have exhausted all my resources. Oh. And uh, I went on Amazon. I constantly go to Amazon to yeah. see, if, you know, some of the books mm -hmm. are there that I can purchase. And I saw Moran and Kelly, but there are no flights now from Georgia so that I can order the book. 
Oh, and so Lord. that I can get it. Oh. I mean, you know, it may sound trivial, but in the long run, it interferes so greatly in my work that sometimes I have to postpone the entire chapter or stop doing, right. you know, whatever I'm doing because I do not have the book and I need it. I have to learn yeah. what other people have to say. Mm. So that's one of the biggest problems. Uh, the second one was, well, as to asking, you know, different foundations, um, um, participating in different uh, competitions. Yes, I have done all that. I have done, uh, you know, I don't want to mention even the organizations, oh, maybe someday, <laughs> but uh, 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 there was, um, it, it was in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, when I decided uh, to participate in that competition, just because it said that we do not want mainstream, you know, works in mainstream, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian uh, uh, um, um, science in humanities. You know, we want something new that are, and I said, oh, my goodness, this is just for me. So I have to write the project. Mm -hmm. I worked on the project for about a year. I sent the project and uh, uh, all depended on the feedback from the scholars. And, you know, it is blind, um, uh, um, I mean, uh, blind peer review. And so four people gave me over 90, 92, 95, one gave me 100, and one gave me a zero. Oh. And because of this zero, <laughs> yes, yeah. my project did not did Aww. not go through to the second stage. So why I am saying this is, again, you know, at every step you yeah. try, perhaps now, perhaps now, perhaps now, but this perhaps never comes, unfortunately, true. Yeah. And, uh, well, I understand this, too, because this is so, well, let me say bizarre. No, not bizarre. It's a very strange, very unusual. Cartvelian, people have not heard about it. People know, don't know even, you know, sometimes on yeah. the map where Georgia is. When I was in Britain in uh, um, 1990, 1995, and I talked to one of the one of the scholars, uh, archaeologist. He was an archaeologist. I don't want to name sure. his name, of sure. course. Now, um, and I said, "Where are you from?" He said, and I said, "I am from Georgia." And he said, "Which Georgia?" I said, "Caucasian." <laughs> oh, let me let me bring a map. He said, and he brought a map, and I showed him where my country was. <laughs> so, and suddenly somebody comes, you know, and says that you know what, Catalan, my language, is connected with Sumerian. Hey. And, you know, we have all the money, we have all the technology, we can do all kinds of projects, we can go where we, expeditions, what have you. You have everything. And we do not have a single clay tablet, yeah. but we have the key. Yeah. And this key opens ancient civilizations. And uh, yeah. we have to use this key as mankind so that we know what is like there. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. It's, it's so ironic that you live right there in the heart of it all. And there are so many limitations put upon you, yet at the same time, like you say, you, you have the key. And I, I think that's it's just amazing. Well, we got two more uh, two more questions to ask for, for right now. Uh, and it really was one, but you're going to kill me when I ask you this. And you don't have to answer. <laughs> I know you're going to kill me but it, because it's so complicated. But can you just in brief, I know you can't, it, whatever. Can you explain okay. to us the Dhoni system? 
Just in part. Oh, <laughs> you're gonna get, You're gonna get mad at me, um, aren't you? <laughs> I, this is um, this is okay. If you can imagine a cake of maybe how many ten, maybe I don't even count it, but of different layers, this big, you know. Yeah. Donny consists of these different layers. It's an alphabetic letter. Uh, it is the sound god. Uh, it is the divine system of the Sumerians. It is the uh, Shen system, or again, divine system of Egyptians. It has been spread through the entire world. It is one of the constituent elements of ancient and modern even architecture. And people have no idea that they are using Doni. And uh, it has been, well, the the religion of the sun, if we go to Egypt, that's that's Doni. That's entirely Doni. And Doni is everywhere in my country as well. Uh, it is in uh, in the surnames and in appellations, you know, in different uh, in different languages. I'm not going to mention them now. Uh, I mean, Doni has everything in itself. It is in my alphabet. Um, it is the sun god. But it is not only the sun god. It is also, I mean, and the sun god in my religion and in my culture is a goddess, okay? But it's not only a goddess, it's also a god. So it is a very complex male-female, male-female deity with alphabetic, mathematical, astrological, uh, ethnographic, um, expression and realization that that's mm. that's very that's very complicated yes. um, I had uh, uh, there was a time where you know I when I was um, when um, in uh, for for about 10 years I worked in Turkey um, at one of the universities there and um, due to this fact, I could allow myself, financially I mean, I could allow myself to arrange uh, different expeditions. And I uh, uh, arranged these uh, expeditions and I asked a friend of mine who is a professional cameraman, you know, to come with me and to uh, uh, record uh, on video, you know, all all, all whatever we saw and what Mm -hmm. we went through. Um, And uh, so at that time, I was collecting the information about Doni as well, you know, because the Doni is in those religious rites as well. It is present there constantly. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I wanted to do uh, to create, um, to make a series of documentaries, kind of Mm -hmm. 20, 25 minutes, you know, something like this, where I would talk about Doni, 
you know, small pieces of uh, each aspect of Dhoni, as an, as an alphabet, as a, as a letter, for example, as a sangot, how it features in Maya architecture, how it features in ancient architecture, sure. how it features in European architecture today, yes. in the United States. I mean, it's everywhere. We are surrounded by this, uh, <laughs> by the warmth of, uh, of this sun, Dhoni. Mm -hmm. And it is also in the, um, uh, it is an element of some of the gods than in the names of the sum of the god. Yeah. So this this is a huge, huge problem. Yeah. But, you know, in, I... <laughs> in time... I don't know if uh, time comes and, uh, you know, this project can be realized. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, now it has just come to me. I have filmed... Uh, it is called the Ahoba. I have 12 hours of video recording. Uh it is a fascinating journey from present to past, to the times when people lived in clans and they worshipped their deities. And the deities that they worshipped in my country, they were called the children of God. Mm -hmm. Now you can imagine how interesting those rites must have been. Yeah. And one of the final components of these rites is brewing is not brewing but is a beer contest now we have all kinds ah. of beer contests you know <laughs> in germany in all the countries and beer uh, is, you know, is the final, you know, huge, very, very interesting component of the whole thing. Right. And uh, I have filmed all this. And because I was fascinated by this contest, you know, as far as beer was concerned, <laughs> you know, the party which won, which wins, there are two, you know, opposing villages, so to say. <laughs> Young men come out, you know, and they have to, uh, there is a bucket, you know, full of beer and newly brewed beer. <laughs> <laughs> the beer has to be brewed um, in a shrine mm. because it has to be divine, right, and it right. should be uh, it should be drunk also um, with the vessels which are from the shrine because divine beer can be drunk only with the help of divine vessels. And mm. so they all compete wow. to be able, you know, to to. Um, to host everyone, you know, present there yeah. with these divine vessels, we and uh, full of divine beer, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, to like drink. To. <laughs> and I was so fascinated with this. Then uh, I I wrote the origin of beer. Uh, hopefully, I one day the, the book is complete, but I still need you know to sit down and work. Inscriptions and writing just. You know, the, this, the inscriptions and writing and alphabets is something that I cannot, um, I cannot, you know, pass by, so to say. Sure. I put aside my beer, I put aside my stonehenge, <laughs> I put aside all the work that I was doing. I said, I have to do beer yes. and I have to do this, you know, <laughs> and uh, I did it. So, again, all these things are so interconnected, you know. Uh, One step takes it, it's like a chain, like a gold chain, you yeah. know. Absolutely. Oh, now the gold chain, and this reminds me of the accessories, Sumerian accessories. This is Doni. Oh, my goodness. These, these my beads, are Donis. Why? Because planet sun is a ball. Mm. And these balls were divine balls that all the 
Sumerian, Akkadian, Assyrian gods are wearing gods and kings as well too. Yeah. And I and some of them have kind of complicated ones. And I wanted to put those pieces here in between the both to give you know that. Uh, uh, the graphic, uh, the, the graphic image of the phases yeah. of this ascleptical movement. Everything is there. People had astronomy all around their neck. Mm -hmm. That's why they were divine. That's why they were gods. And today we wear these necklaces, and we have no idea wow. that we are basically claiming that we come from the solar system. That our god is. So. Oh, that's amazing. That's so amazing. I, I, uh, I know that we've talked in brief about that, um, the, the Doni uh, being depicted in uh, you know, Mesopotamia with the god, with the, uh, the hourglass or the, the watch, per se, on his wrist, and the little kind of like, it looks like an ankh type uh, symbol, more or less. That's right. And he's going that, around right. a radius. So mm. that's kind of the, the thing we're talking about. So for the audience, once again, that's spelled D- as in dog, O-N-I, if you want to look, look that up with Anna Meski is, is uh, being one, the scholar that really uh, d digs deep into that. That was a very unfair uh, question because we didn't, <laughs> it's so deep and I, I know it's more sacred than, I hate to, to make it cheap for you because I know that you go so deep and, and you know, and I when I'm asking any of these questions, I feel like I could give you a year for each answer and I, I hate to just run you through like this but and it just means a lot to me that you would would take this time with with me and with us if i can just uh it, it really does you, it means a lot to me and and i guess the last the last question is simply this what, what are your plans for the future anna well in fact i have uh, i have already talked about this i'm writing a book on the inscription from gragliani gora okay uh, gragliani mound so now my first project is to finish this one. And after that, I intend uh, to, write, um, uh, to write a book. It's also a book. It is basically written to about, um, about the etymology of Stonehenge and its graphic uh, oh, wow. and the decipherment of its architecture. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, that's the second project. And then I intend, of course, to write about beer. This beer is sitting on one of my shelves <laughs> and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, waiting the, when I take it. <laughs> and I do not drink beer. And whenever, you know, because I know the technology, how it is prepared right. and all this stuff, I do not mean how they prepared in Germany. I mean how they prepared in Sumer right. and how they prepared in our mountainous regions. Oops. Oh, it's okay. Keep on talking. It was just... Uh, uh, Okay. And incoming. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so I know that. And when, you know, when, when we meet, uh, you know, our friends and, and we usually have, a, you know, we usually drink or eat, or, you know, we love to have friends with us and mm -hmm. we love to share our food and discuss different things. And yeah. when they say, hey, Anna, uh, you know, drink beer. And I say, I, I don't drink it. And they yeah. say, hey, you have written a book. Why don't you drink beer? <laughs> I say, I cannot drink beer. Well, you, you know what? You know what's so funny is that I used to drink beer. My, my, my wife is a medical practitioner, uh, and she's found out that I have a gluten allergy, so I can't drink or eat anything uh, with gluten, so I can't drink 
Uh, oh, I see now. Yeah. Most probably you can drink Georgian beer. When you come to Georgia, I'll take you to the mountains and you will drink. <laughs> Don't tell my okay. wife. <laughs> but yes, I'll do it. Take her with you. Take I will. You. I would she take... will enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure she will. I would take her with me anywhere, of course. Well, I would definitely t- take you up on that offer if you, want to, if you want to offer us to come out there. And you are more, more than welcome anytime to, to come over to our home. We would feed you and take care of you as well over here. Thank you. Um, well, just to say thank you again, Anna, this has been a real treat for me. Um, and you know, you talking to me and I I hate that I'm having to be between two worlds. I hate looking at the script because I just want to talk to you naturally with the natural flow and, and just listen and, you know, kind of go from there. Um, but you know what we, we might try to do, uh, is to have another interview, um, at some point and, uh, you know, try to do a, more of a focus on what, you know, you want to this time, your your latest works, even the beer. I mean, that'd be great. We should have a thing on beer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, 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 trying to think here, if, is there any, um, uh, if, if I can help you or aid you uh, to get your works out or to be known as how to contact you, uh, I will. I will do so on my website in the podcast. Is there? Is there any? Uh, that would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can, can you? Do you? Do you want to tell me, or you want to text me, uh, what the best uh, you know contact would be? To, you know, to go to to get your works, your you know your lectures, or you, whatever you you tell me. Okay, I suppose I'll think about that. Okay. okay yeah. Uh, because these things uh, have to be thought have to be thought out well. Yes. And yes, uh, we, yes we can discuss it uh, on email, yeah. and uh, yeah. then we can you know come to some conclusions and do. It. I can say um, definitely that uh, I do want my works, of course, to go to the English speaking, you know, world yes. because that's why um, I'm writing in English, and most probably. That's why God, you know, told me that, you know, Anna, you have to, you have to study. You know what, Kyle? Shall I tell you why I decided to become a specialist of English? Tell me. Okay. I mentioned that it's kind of an interesting story. And uh, I'll tell you now. Uh, So I was 11 years old. Mm. I was in my fifth grade. And I was an excellent student. Mm-hmm. I always loved reading and I always loved studying. I love it. I love it. Uh, and uh, um, I remember we, uh, we started English in my fifth grade. And I remember my teacher, my teacher of English, um, who called me, you know, to the board and asked me the, the lesson, you know. Well, I read the text. I remember what the word was. It was pig. I hate pigs after that. (laughs) I had to read the word pig. And I said, you know, I read the word. I, um, you know, um, mentioned the letters which, you know, combined the word. And then the teacher told me, Anna, go to the board and pick out the cards with these letters P-I-N-G, and spell them out on the board. And this, uh, you know, this uh, thing, it, uh, this, um, how should I say, it was a kind of a, 
um, box, if you will, all the little boxes, and it covered almost the entire board. And I was a little girl, and I could not see those letters well. And it took me some time to, you know, to find these letters. And she said, you do not know the lesson. You are not prepared. Sit down. Your grade today is four. We had a five-grade system. Excellent was five, four, you know, the next, etc. That was the first, first (laughs) good mark in my life. I was so very much, not angry, but, you know, I felt that I was uh, not treated properly. It was not fair of my teacher to treat me like that. Yes. And I said, I sat down at my desk. Yeah. I remember even today, I looked at her. Tears were coming down my cheeks. <laughs> and I said to myself, look, Era Georgievna, her name was. Oh, boy. <laughs> I will become, yes, I will become a much better specialist of English than you are. Yes. And I kept my promise. Yes, and I did. remember <laughs> in 1990. Uh, when I defended my PhD, the uh, chairman of the committee stood up and said, in my whole life, this is, and she, uh, he was an old man, and yeah. he said, in my whole life, this is the second dissertation that I will remember for the rest of my life. Amen. And that was <laughs> when I said, yes, I have fulfilled my promise which I gave to my English teacher. Yes. I know English much better than she does. Well, I, I want to back well, you. I want to back you for one second. I want you to continue, but I want to tell the audience that in your book, we didn't even discuss Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Norse, Icelandic languages that led to oh, the wonder. English. Fascinating. Oh, my gosh, people. I mean, this is, and it's tied to Kartvelian. I, I, I'm sold. I have got to learn at least Georgian and you have to help me. <laughs> no, okay, but it's very difficult. I know that. I know that. But <laughs> I'm kind of. I'm not joking. I'm going to learn it. But uh, oh, wonderful! But uh, you know, it's just uh, it's it's amazing. I didn't. We just didn't go that route. But it's the probably the greatest treatment I've ever seen on uh, in, in a short synopsis of the of the Anglo-Saxon Icelandic um, from the perspective of Cartvelian. I've never seen that at all, actually. So I'll be quiet. I'll let you continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have basically finished. I mean, yeah. that was the story which actually um, moved me all my life. You know, until. I reached the final point, so to say, which said that this person is, you know, is an academic. She knows English much better than the teachers at school level. Yeah. And that, I mean, I don't know. So I, um, in 19, I was 30, 39 years old when I defended this dissertation. And that was the promise that I gave to myself at 11. Yeah. So it's beautiful. T- it, t- it takes time, uh, time and it take, takes courage, and I don't know. It, you know, most probably it takes love too. I just yeah. love the. And I came to Georgian like this through <laughs> English because I started. Uh, my fascination at the beginning was English. 
Yeah. So wow. That is a, that's it helped. Yeah, it helped me to discover the beauty of my own language. We'll talk about Shakespeare and Edmund Spencer and all those guys later. <laughs> Jane okay. Austen, Jane Austen, a lot of the greater American writers. Well, I used to read these books, you know, at university level, but for the last twenty-five years, <laughs> I've been reading only, only I mean, only Sumerology, oh, ethnology, archaeology, you know, stuff like that. It's a life. Unfortunately, I will not be a good uh, uh, <laughs> talker, you know, or speaker no, no, on no. literature. But I used to. Um, uh, there was a time when I wanted to teach a course of um, uh, cultural issues of uh, of um, English-speaking countries, and I wanted United States, Britain, New Zealand, all that, sure. and you know, um, and uh, uh, discuss different issues. And I was fascinated at that time by jazz because my sister is a my sister is a pianist, and you know, I I have some connection, you know, with music. I loved it, and so I thought, oh, I have to do the jazz now. And oh, I yeah. read so much about jazz, uh, but you know, with time you forget you oh, all those things. So, mm -hmm. but. Um, Uh, they help you at that particular stage and everything whatever a person learns always opens up new avenues and you never know when it comes to help you Amen. and it does when 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 the need comes that's amazing well <laughs> I'm a jazz drummer so you might we have some other things in common <laughs> yeah well yeah. Uh, we, we have a lot more to talk about we will definitely email and uh, all that good stuff but uh, just want to say thank you again Anna. 